Hi, everybody. Welcome to the May 22nd, 2020 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the report from the Associated Press stating that some Colorado counties give law enforcement agencies the addresses of people who have tested positive for COVID-19. State health officials said that any information sharing is being done directly at a local level between law enforcement and local health agencies. As always, let's start with Patty Calhoun for Westward. Patty, I think we're now getting into that kind of next level of this crisis, or kind of that, that, whether you want to call it new normal, environment, whatever, is this idea of uh, uh, personal information and privacy and where that collides with public safety. Uh, what did you think about the reports from the Associated Press and the comments from state officials this week? Well, there is no privacy anymore. We've got everyone on their mobile phone. We know the protesters who came from out of state to go to the Capitol. And did they spread COVID when they went back? We have people who filed for unemployment in Colorado whose personal information was leaked out. We have anywhere we go on our cell phones, everyone seems to know where we are. So this wasn't a surprise, especially because we have local counties and health agencies going a little more rogue. But if it's used ultimately for tracing, it's probably a greater good, but I can't help but feel squeamish to have all this information out there. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, this seems rife with uh, legal issues, uh, pro and con and really everything in between. What are some of the important things that we need to know when we see a headline like this? for doing this, you know, you might as well give the police your list of other infectious diseases that somebody may have uh, in the house if you, if you follow this policy. It's the same as the argument for the Canadian gun registration system, which the Canadian government uh, sensibly repealed in 2012. The, the anti-privacy, you know, panoptica on surveillance advocates say that this these lists mean that the police will know when they go to a particular location that is especially dangerous. And so they'll be more careful. But actually, they should be careful everywhere they go because criminals don't use registered guns. And so if you go to a place that doesn't have a registered gun, there still might be a criminal with an unregistered gun. And the same thing here. People who have been victimized by the CCCP virus may not all be on some kind of government list. Natasha Gardner, articles editor at 5280. Uh, I could I see all sides of this, but I have friends and relatives who are first responders, and I certainly would like to see them have information they need. But I also understand David's point that they are probably, they're, they're both firefighters, they're already being addressed uh, in a situation that they don't know what they're going to be encountering, so they're prepared for the worst. So uh, how do you balance this? What do you think is going to happen moving forward? Well, I think with situations like this, it's always important to sort of get back to the root cause. And um, thanks to some reporting from the Denver Post that we know that part of the reason this information was being released is because these first responders don't have enough PPE to enter these um, homes safely. So I wonder in this situation if the cure is actually worse than the original problem. If the problem is that we don't have enough PPE for our first responders, that's what we need to focus on. Perhaps moving into this murky territory of personal information and data is not the way to solve that situation. So I would just recommend that before we, we step into even murkier waters with data retention, as everyone has pointed out already, where these modern days um, have already changed our expectations related to that, um, let's, let's get police the masks that they need to be able to enter a home safely. 
Rounding up the panel, Jake Douglas with Democratic Socialists of America. Thank you so much for being back on the panel, Jake. Uh, when you look at this and the comments uh, from the ACLU and everything in between, and also, frankly, a lot of uh, unionized members of our first responders that uh, might need this information or at least be benefiting from it, there's a lot of murky territory here. How do you look at it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, these are very scary times, um, but I think that we've got to think about whether this is an unnecessary invasion of privacy that's really not going to um, achieve its intended effect. You know, if these are only uh, folks who have tested positive, that's only maybe 10, a 10th or a 20th of people who actually are probably infected with the disease. So um, I don't feel comfortable about the idea of handing out um, more information to local police forces um, that have time and again shown that they're, they're not being held accountable um, by the public. Uh, when it comes to these kinds of cases. So, um, yeah, I think this is a, an unnecessary and dangerous step myself. Let's get to one of the major stories that popped up this week. This week, the Joint Budget Committee cut 58% of the general fund support that goes to higher education. The motion passed unanimously, even though JBC staff hadn't even gone f that far in their recommendations for potential cuts. It is yet to be seen if this new hole will be filled through federal COVID-19 funding. The committee also voted to close a minimum security prison in Canyon City. Uh, Patty, we'll start with you. Um, this seems to me like the, the beginning of probably a long budget slog that we're going to see the uh, Colorado legislature have to maneuver. Uh, it, I guess it didn't surprise me that higher education was first only because uh, that, that seems to have the least... Uh, lobbying support, even in non-COVID times. Uh, but what did you think when you saw these first headlines from the JBC's maneuvers? I thought that four months makes a lot of difference. Just think about what was happening when the legislature was working on its budget back in January, thought the state was going to be so flush, booming economy. Now they go back on May 26th, looking at disasters in every possible corner. I have to think the only reason the JBC was so willing to cut the higher education budget right away was simply because they are counting on the feds stepping up and making up most of it. But we also have to look at how higher education is gonna change over the next few months in the wake of the coronavirus. We're looking at remote things. Are we looking at campuses? Higher education is really gonna to have to redefine a lot of what it's doing. And in the meantime, I think the JBC just thought, we'll take care of it, the feds will come in, They've got a month to balance this budget, and it's just going to be a nightmare every step of the way. David, as you look at this process, I mean, I, I think uh, seeing higher education as a first headline, it didn't surprise me just because the tough ones are coming. The K through 12 cuts, um, other programs that at least could be cut, uh, they're, the 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 more sacred cows have, have yet to be brought into the slaughterhouse, if you know what I mean here. So, but when you look at higher education and Patty's point that there's probably going to be some reimagination of just how higher education works, might this provide an opportunity in the midst of a crisis? Well, to start with, uh, there's been tremendous uh, bloat in, in higher education over the, the, the course of the past generation. If you look at the, uh, ratio of, of faculty to students, that's pretty much stayed the same as it was, you know, back in the 1980s. But the ratio of administrators and non-teaching employees to students has soared gigantically. And so that's that's a place where I think cuts, cuts are long overdue. You know, the, the Joint Budget Committee is the most respected committee 
in the state legislature. The House and Senate each choose three of their best members to be on the committee. Being on the, being on the Joint Budget Committee is a huge amount of extra work, and it's only sought, for, sought or given to uh, very serious legislators. And it's always a bipartisan committee. So currently, it have the the committee has four Democrats and two Republicans. Um, since each house sends three, and the Democrats control both houses, when the joint budget committee is unanimous, that really says something. And if the budget experts in both parties agree on where the cuts should be, that's there's a good chance they're right. Natasha, let's piggyback on that last point. I think David made a good one that if you have a unanimous vote from the JBC, this was not a party line vote. This was not a bitterly fought debate. If they weren't waiting for staff recommendations, uh, all of them had pretty strong feelings about this and that we know tougher things are to come. Uh, when you see this, what, what are some of the things that went through your mind as both from this particular action and then what we might be able to see ahead? Yeah, that is an interesting point. And I think right now in the in this moment on this issue and on so many other issues, um, if we can find a an area where it doesn't become a partisan battleground, that's great. So yes, if the committee is agreeing on things, that's probably a good, good indication that that is something that we could cut. This is just going to be very difficult. We've spent a lot of years hearing the reasons why things were being added to the budget, hearing very valued arguments why these things were essential and necessary to the future of Colorado. And now we're going to see them taken away and sort of moved into that non-essential category. And, and what I'm interested in is what does this look like in two or three years when hopefully we can start perhaps moving some of those items back onto the list and how that argument goes. I think that's going to be long-term implications on the way that we talk about the things that are cut right now. So I do also hope that as the politicians look at it, that we can focus on that and not make this into a, a battleground or a bloody field where it doesn't need to be. You know, one of the things um, weeks ago, but it, it honestly feels like years ago, I did a what I called a quarantine challenge on 5280.com and asking people to fill out their census. So if you haven't done that, please go, go do that now. Um, but in addition to that, I think there's another opportunity here. And so the quarantine challenge I, I would issue now is that if people are thinking about the budget and have questions about it, why don't you go and take a look at what the state is spending money on? And if you have ideas and creative ways that the city cities and states might be able to overcome the shortfalls that we're going to have, this is a time to read out, reach out to your elected officials and, and give them some help, because I guarantee you those people are working really hard right now and need some creative ideas. Natasha, that is an excellent quarantine challenge. I love that. I hope uh, if there's any viewers out there that uh, would do it, it is definitely the Colorado Inside Out viewers, so I hope they take you up on that challenge. Uh, Jake, as you look at this, uh, is is this something where when it comes to higher education, Let's not fight about this one because the real debate is going to come to K through 12 education and other issues. Um, how did you see uh, this latest round of JBC decisions? Well, I think you're right that we need to start tackling this right now because this is just going to be the first of um, a number of disastrous cuts that we're going to see to public services in the state um, if this crisis isn't handled properly. You know, talking about higher education, but also K-12. Uh, right now, K-12 education, the state itself estimates, is being underfunded by five or six hundred million dollars a year. Um, the uh, Denver Classroom Teachers Association held a, a town hall this past week, um, and there was a, a story from a, a custodian, a facilities manager, about what it was like during the recession um, in, in 08. And uh, the staff there looked at 
cuts from about 30 custodians down to 11. And so if we're talking about uh, you know, cutting, cutting essential uh, custodial staff in the middle of a pandemic, um, I don't know what's gonna happen to, to our kids. Uh, the CDC is um, advising that there be six feet of separation in classrooms between students. And if we're looking at uh, cutting education budget even further in the state, I don't know how that's possible. And uh, we're gonna be putting our kids in a really, uh, you know, not only are they impact their education, but their health is gonna be at risk. So I would urge that we think about uh, supporting the call from uh, the Colorado Education Association um, to raise an emergency tax under Tabor um, on those making over 250K a year to fill um, the budget cuts that we're gonna see because of COVID. The, the wealthy in this state um, can afford to pay their fair share to make sure that everyone gets the education they need and stay safe. Let's get to our next topic. On Friday, Governor Poe signed an executive order allowing petition signatures for November's ballot initiatives to be gathered via mail and email. The order is now being challenged in court, uh, including by business lobbying group Colorado Concern and by the group supporting the late-term abortion ban ballot initiative, since that initiative was omitted by the special order. David, this got into some pretty complicated legal area uh, for somebody like me, uh, so we count on you as uh, our esteemed lawyer on the panel. Uh, what do we need to know about the executive order and then the lawsuit that is a part of it? Well, the, <clears throat> we start with what the, the law says. The Colorado legislature in 2012 delegated enormous authority uh, to the governor of Colorado under the Colorado Dis Disaster Emergency Act. It's a, a current law that goes way further than a lot of the more uh, prudent uh, laws uh, that have been enacted in, in many other states on this. And under the act, the, the governor may, quote, suspend the provisions of any regulatory statute prescribing the procedures for conduct of state business or the orders, rules, or regulations of any state agency in strict compliance with the provisions of any statute, order, rule, or regulation would in any way <coughs> prevent, hinder, or delay necessary action in coping with the emergency. That is very broad power. And you can be for or against it, but that's where the law is now. So the group against late abortions, which is called Due Date Too Late, needed 124,000 signatures to get on the ballot. And after some invalid signatures were thrown out in the review by the Secretary of State, they were about 10,000 signatures short. So under the law, they have this cure period of 15 days to, to make up the deficit, and their cure period runs out on May 29th. The governor's exemptions apply to all petitions except those are, which are currently in the cure period, of which there is only one, the anti-abortion petition. So they argue that they're being discriminated against based on their political viewpoint, and that violates the First Amendment as well as the 14th Amendment, which guarantees to everyone equal protection of, of the law. I, I read their complaint, which was filed in federal district court, and it looks pretty solid. But on the other hand, the Colorado Attorney General's office has some very good lawyers on the case, uh, so they might win. The other case filed by the, the pro-business group Colorado Concern, uh, their, their lead plaintiff is, is Daniel Ritchie, the former chancellor of Denver University, who's very well respected in the community in general. And so they argue that, that since the stay-at-home house arrest order expired on April 26th, that the petition exemption doesn't actually help cope with, with any emergency. I think that's a weak argument because even though house arrest is over, uh, we're still being ordered to stay six feet apart, which is something that definitely uh, would impede petition gathering. 
Natasha, there's a lot of different uh, legal angles to this, but I think there's also the broader political angle. If basically you look at this, I think as a, a layperson, without going into all the different uh, lawsuit details, you see that it impacts all the other ballot initiatives that have yet to come except this one. And this one happens to be a pretty uh, um, a polarizing issue anywhere, but especially in Colorado. Uh, do you think that uh, we'll, we'll probably see a longer cure period uh, for uh, this particular ballot initiative? Um, I'm not quite sure about that. What I do think would be interesting, I mean, as you're pulling it back to that particular instance, I mean, you could almost even pull this back to the primary race. And as candidates were trying to get on um, that ballot and collecting signatures and, and the arguments that went through the courts related to that, this bigger question of how we collect signatures is not going to end in 2020. I think it's something we're going to talk about for a while. There's a couple of reasons for that. One, um, you know, we've, we've probably made several references to sort of assembling the plane while we're flying right now, that's happening. But we're, we also are disassembling the plane as we're flying in, in this case as well. I, I think that in the same way that we're rethinking classrooms and the way that businesses connect with people and this virtual environment and what life looks like as we move out into a more um, open uh, living environment again, I think we're gonna look at back and, and make que ask questions about how we do things. And so I think a long-term result of this is maybe just looking at signature gathering in general General and asking the question of why it can't be virtual all the time. Jake, let's go to that question. I think when Tasha raises a good point, uh, 2020 is changing a lot of different attitudes towards things that we took for granted in February. Um, is the idea of signing a piece of paper to put your endorsement behind something appearing on the ballot, is that something that is due for some evolution? Yeah, well, I think, you know, in general, Colorado has one of the most um, open and, and democratic systems for um, uh, for ballot initiatives in the country. And a lot of states are looking to us right now um, in implementing a mail-in ballot system. So I think, um, you know, we've got to adjust uh, reasonably. We're in the middle of an unprecedented global pandemic, and there are, you know, some necessary adjustments that need to be made. But I would raise the issue of you know, why, why are wealthy business groups um, like the, the business lobby in Colorado concern um, opposing this measure? What do they stand to gain if uh, initiatives like um, Fair Tax Colorado are not on the ballot? It's not because they, in my opinion, you know, have a strong uh, feelings on uh, democracy, but because they don't want to see um, their bottom line hurt by, um, by increasing taxes on the wealthy in the state. So, um, I'm, you know, uh, I'm frustrated that um, these groups are um, saying that saying that they are standing up for uh, the Constitution when really they're they're just interested in, in making a profit and making sure that workers in the state don't have a voice. Patty, pitch battles over ballot access is nothing new to Colorado, but now we have the COVID curveball. Uh, what's your take? Well, before the pandemic, we had all mail voting. We were able to vote by mail. If it works when you don't have a pandemic, it certainly makes sense that you would be able to do it during a pandemic. And if we can make our vote by mail, why shouldn't we be able to make a signature on a petition by mail or virtually, something like that? It's not, as Natasha points out, we've had 
problems with petitioning for decades. Walker Stapleton had problems. You have people, you're paying to go out and get signatures who don't behave ethically. You have people, volunteers who don't get what they're doing. Our system hasn't worked even with without a pandemic. And now, as David points out, you really don't want to have someone come within two feet of you with a clipboard. So this does need to be fixed. It's true that boosters, movers and shakers have never liked how easy it is for Coloradans, for citizens to get initiatives on the ballot. But I have to say that's one of the things you love about Colorado is that people feel they can have a voice. So maybe what we need to do ultimately is raise the level of signatures you need to get to put something on a ballot, but also make it easier to get and verify those signatures. We do have one little problem here right now, of course. The U.S. Postal Service happens to have a few COVID outbreak problems and is in the middle of a huge fight with the city of Denver over whether or not they're going to allow people in to see what's going on. So right now, mail may not be the best solution. I think you raised an excellent point there, Patty. Let's get a quick take on this last one. The Independence Institute, Colorado Rising, and Americans for Prosperity have announced a proposed 2020 ballot initiative to lower the state income tax from 4.63% to 4.55%. This initiative is seen by some as a countermeasure to the already proposed 2020 ballot initiative, raising the state income tax to 7% for those making above $250,000 a year and lowering it to 4.58% for those making under $250,000 a year. Um, uh, Natasha, we start with you on this one. Your quick take on this potential uh, ballot of the tax breaks. (laughs) And I think that's what's going to happen here. It actually, to me, feels a little reminiscent of the transportation um, issues that we had on the ballot um, recently, too, where it's sort of the the two uh, opposing ideas are somewhat complementary at times, but not really, really confuse voters. And so I wouldn't be surprised if voters take a look at this and perhaps say no to each other. And at least, at the very least, I think that's what the opposition to one or both of them is going to say, is that we don't know enough right now, the time isn't right, um, that opposition campaign pretty much writes itself. Jake, you referred to this earlier in the show, but uh, what's your quick take on this particular issue? Yeah, um, this is not the, the time to be lowering taxes on those who can afford to pay. We're in the middle of a massive budgetary crisis Um, And I think the reality that we need to talk about is that if we are cutting cutting essential services, we're we're cutting education, we're cutting um, resources to public health, um, people people in this state are gonna be put into very unsafe conditions. If if people's uh, unemployment insurance runs out, they're gonna be forced to go back to work uh, in in dangerous situations and potentially, um, you know, with impacts on their health and the lives of themselves and their loved ones. So, um, our country was most prosperous when we had uh, something like 90% uh, tax on the um, top income earners in this country, and uh, we are way below that now. The rich can afford to, to pay to keep us all safe. Patty, uh, tax uh, cuts on a ballot have always been popular, except when you start reading the fine print. How do you think this one's going to go? I think we're going to wind up having some very, very ugly fights. We've already seen that the division between the haves and the have-nots has been increased markedly during this uh, coronavirus, and it's only going to get worse by November. So we can expect uncivil discourse across the state. David Bean from the Independence Institute will give you the last word on this one. It is a short take, but the floor is yours. 
Well, the Independence Institute proposal is for a, a small tax cut for everyone. And the other proposal is for an even smaller tax cut for some and a very big tax increase for many. The key thing about the other proposal is, is the poison pill in it. There's no indexing for inflation. You know, so one, one time, if you made $5,000 a year, that was a lot of money. But then we have the federal government printing so much paper money that that destroys the value of the dollar. And so what was a high income at one time becomes a, a low income uh, years later. So with no indexing, the result is that a tax that gets sold to the public is, don't worry, it's only about taxing those, those bad, evil, rich people, eventually is going to apply to the middle class as well. And, you know, the experience of California and, and New York and other states shows that the super rich uh, don't really get affected by these uh, so-called progressive high taxes. Uh, but they do drive out uh, the entrepreneurs and the small businesses. And those are the folks who actually create most of the jobs. Let's get to our very, very part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, I mentioned uncivil discourse, and I'm sure everyone else has noticed people are running to their corners and shouting all the while. They have gotten a lot more argumentative, a lot less gracious, and a lot less accommodating. David. The Chinese Communist Party, while the world is being distracted by the virus that they knowingly spread, uh, the party is eliminating the re remnants of freedom in Hong Kong. So really, they're, they're like Hitler and Stalin. They want to inflict tyranny not only on their neighbors, but eventually on us. Natasha. The weather is gorgeous. People are getting out of their houses. I understand that. But um, at 5280, we've seen some pictures of overflowing trash cans at outdoor spaces. Just a reminder to people, like, be kind. If, if the trash is overflowing, take it home with you. <laughs> Pack it with you. I, I couldn't agree with you more there, Natasha. Jake. Kucha uh, House of Tea in Fort Collins, um, which fired all of its employees a couple of weeks ago for demanding some basic safety precautions for their immunocompromised workers, um, just disgraceful and uh, making all of us more unsafe if workers don't feel like they have the right to voice concerns about safety. Time to see something nice about somebody. Patty? Let's return to that wonderful time a century ago. This is the week the U.S. House of Representatives approved giving women the vote and Senate followed up and two weeks later, Colorado had already given women the right to vote, but the rest of the country finally got on board. David? Well, you know, Lutherans and Catholics have had a lot of conflicts over the past 500 years. But in Minnesota, they've, they're, uh, they've jointly agreed to defy the Minnesota governor, Tim Waltz's bigoted edict that says casinos can open with safety rules, but churches have to stay shut, even if they obey those very same safety rules. Natasha? I don't do this very often, but I'm just so proud of the 5280 editorial um, and art teams that the City and Regional Magazine Awards last night, which we all attended virtually, we just had an incredible turnout with everything from winning in the general magazine category to excellence online. So just a shout out to my coworkers. You're doing a great job. And Jake. Well, I'm a, I'm a catering worker, and so I really appreciate uh, Governor Polis and also Mayor Hancock taking steps this week to release uh, draft guidelines for the reopening of restaurants, um, giving workers a chance to uh, provide uh, some feedback and have, have a voice in um, this reopening, which is going to be potentially very dangerous for workers and the public both. That is all the time we have for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. Thank you so much for watching. On behalf of everybody here at PBS 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Have a great night.